Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. Well, it's such a great day, isn't it? It's always a good day. It's all about perspectives, I think. We talked a little bit about that last last uh, episode. We talked about just the perspectives of um, uh, worship songs, or or the way that we perceive God's presence, right? Because uh, we worked through some of the psalms that David wrote. Actually, was that last? That might have been a couple of episodes ago. I think last time we talked about the the honor roll of David's mighty men, but that's fine. I'm still going to talk about perceptions. <laughs> I was because I was reading even today. I was reading this uh, amazing, amazing book. It's a classic uh, by Henry Nouwen called uh, "The Return of the Prodigal," and it's it's he's a brilliant writer. Uh, if you haven't ever read him, you should. Um, man, just wow. Anyways, but even in the way that that we look at uh, the prodigal, and many you know they'll see the father as the uh, representation of God, the father, how the father waits for his son, how the father uh, longs for his son, how the father uh, celebrates the return of his son. But all of that still keeps this idea alive. And I'm not saying that that, that the experience isn't true or that that, you know, that obviously the the <clears throat> the value of that parable is immense. And Jesus gave that for a reason. But the idea of being able to leave God the Father is is not a true is not true, right? We can never leave Him because He never leaves us. It's not our choice to leave Him. It's our choice to ignore the fact that we have Him. It's our choice to ignore the voice of the Father speaking to us. It's our choice to harden our hearts, if you want to call it that, harden our ears. To the idea that that God the Father is there and that He loves us, to be beloved is just so intense, and and it impacts so much of the choices we make. That some people, like it's overwhelming. It is. It's overwhelming. And sometimes it's if if you're dealing with self rejection, like like Saul clearly did, and I'm not saying other characters in this story didn't have any self rejection, but I think Saul is is in this story because he gives the counterbalance to David and David's basic instinct, which is he was beloved. Not that David always behaved that way. And Saul periodically clearly behaved in, a, in the position and passion that God had for him, the purpose that God had for him. And David periodically behaved as though someone who wasn't beloved or connected to God. But Generally speaking, the, these two struggled with 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 different aspects, right? And Saul's struggle was was with this idea of rejection, and and part of that is he thought God was distant. He he thought God had walked away from him, and and he thought God was no longer talking to him. He thought he had to make God happy in order for God to show up and do something for him, and all of that is just. It's, it, it's, I don't want to, uh, it's tough to say, this is, you know, it's a lie of the enemy, but the enemy wants God to seem distant. 
he knows it's a lie. He knows that God isn't. <laughs> so I, <laughs> and he and he also understands the enemy does understand that it it feels like God disappears. It feels like God shows up periodically. It feels like we come running back to God, that it's our efforts that bring us back together. But it's not. But I understand why it feels that way. And that's why sometimes, you know, not sometimes, actually, a lot of times we sing songs in church that are written much like the Psalms of David, it, they're written from the experiential standpoint, the, the 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 emotional end of things, and that doesn't make them less less valuable. It just theologically they're not true. But if we throw out all the songs and psalms, you know that that or phrases in songs, I shouldn't say just. Well, no, we'll go back to that one. If we threw out every song that had a phrase or a line that that we didn't agree with theologically, you'd end up singing about, you know, maybe three or four songs for the rest of your life because it's just, uh, it's, you know, so much of it is just an expression of, of the emotion. It's not the truth of being beloved. It's not the truth of the fact that no one can pluck you out of God's hand. Not even you. Not even you. You can pretend that you're not there. And that's really what, right, that, well, basically what the prodigal does, right? He pretended that his father was dead. He pretended that his that he didn't have a home and he went searching for a new one. He pretended he wasn't loved. He pretended no one, you know, that, that he was independent and no one cared. None of that was true. And none of that was true all the way through. It didn't matter that what he did. It didn't change the facts that he had a home, that he ha- was loved, and that people did care. Anyways, I don't need to, I don't need to preach the story of the prodigal. That's a mini epic. <laughs> but it's a great book, so check it out. If you haven't already, because I know a lot of you already have, because it's been around for a long time. All right. So today we're in 2 Samuel 24. It's it's a weird it's a weird story. It's it's another one of those stories that uh, are is kind of plucked from the timeline of David, and I believe it's here to illustrate something about David. It's definitely a story that they could have left out. There's there's no there's there's nothing here that would make David look good. David looks bad in the story. So why is it here? I don't know. Now. I, uh, I'm not going to go into when they think it happened or anything like that. Uh, you can, you can do all that research. It's just fascinating to me because it's, if, if people go through this, they usually use it as an example of God, uh, getting angry at David and doing something really mean to him, killing thousands of people. It's fascinating because because they think God will do that. And I just find that fascinating that you would need God to do that. I need a God who does that. The only like the only time you really want God to be killing other people, for those who want God to kill other people, is when you think you're the right one and God would never kill you. Right? It, it's very similar to the mindset of like uh, uh, what I would call like militant environmentalists. They, they believe, you know, passionately. There's way too many people on the planet. We just, you know, we need a, <laughs> a coronavirus. 
which, you know, people thought was going to wipe out the planet. Turns out, you know, percentage wise, people don't get wiped out. I'm not saying it's not a bad disease, but anyways, no, I don't get into politics, Bob. Okay, I won't. So people, but militant environmentalists would be like, there's too many people on the planet. The earth is going to be destroyed. Half the people need to die. But they don't they don't want to be the ones that die because they believe well we're the only ones who know how to take care of the planet like we if everybody died but those of us who know how to take care of the planet then we'd take care of the planet and everything would be fine now i don't i don't know what that means it goes to that whole idealism of uh you know of the the political coup that absalom did right it's just like it's easy to tear something down it's easy. It's running it afterwards. It's actually, you know, moving forward with the plans uh, that that makes life difficult. And usually, <laughs> idealistic people are are awesome. I I love being around them. I love hearing their passion. Uh, and I guess probably because I'm old, I just sit back and I think, yeah, there's so many questions that you would need to answer once you take over the world. Like, <laughs> but God bless your heart. I think idealism is a is an awesome thing because it brings passion to the body. It brings passion to the culture of of humanity. I don't think it should be ignored or laughed at. I think it should be listened to because inside there's something there that says, "All right, we we need to incorporate some of this passion to keep life moving." I think a lot of churches lose that because the passionate ones don't have the experience often. Not always, but often they don't have the experience. So they get roles within the church and and they come forward with these amazing things that that we could do to change, you know, to change things. And and their passion isn't heard because deep inside they actually have little keys that would actually help the, the ministry move forward and stay fresh. But instead, it's it's like, well, we love your passion. Let's corral it, let's box it up, and let's stick it into the the structure, the framework that we have for passion. And it looks just like what we've done for the last ten years, or maybe twenty years, or maybe thirty or fifty. It's crazy, but it's true. I got a sneeze. Aha! I found the pause button. Something I was reminded of that I missed or were scared of on the first episode. I didn't know. I didn't know many, many, many episodes ago that I could just hit pause and sneeze or go get a drink of water or anything like that. So there you go. We've learned things along the way. Learned things along the way. So we're back in the Second Samuel 24. And we, we, you know, it starts out. It starts out. The first verse starts out with, the anger, again, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Like this happens all the time. The anger of God comes up against us. Oh, he's going to kill us all. And he incited David against them. Wait, the Lord incited David to go take a census of Israel and Judah. So, so this is, this is, <laughs> this is a great illustration of that mindset that I talked about, I think, I think it was episode two, like a year ago. Oh man. 
I know I know it was like 60 hours ago. That part's true. Probably closer to 70 hours. But anyways, it's that concept that God, the sovereignty of God is that he's in control of everything, including the bad stuff. So basically this verse, from the, from the writer's perspective, on this piece of history where, where a bunch of people died, he looks back and he says, all right, why would David have, take, have taken a census when he knows he's not supposed to? Oh, because God wanted him to, because God was angry with Israel, so God wanted to do something really bad. And he couldn't do it without a reason, so he causes David to do the wrong thing so that God can punish the people for doing for David doing the wrong thing. Like it's it's so twisted. It's so twisted to think that God would think that way. And yet I do understand. Like if you need God to be the bad guy, then how do you find a reason for him to be a bad guy? You have to give him a reason. And so the writer here gives God a reason. He puts God in charge of making David do something wrong so that God could do something bad so that he could have a reason for doing something bad because Israel wasn't, wasn't you know, being good. And this all goes to behavioral manipulation, which so many people believe God does. And, and not only God, but believes that we're supposed to be that way. And the church is supposed to be that way. And pastors are supposed to be that way. We're supposed to manipulate God's, uh, people's behavior so that they behave well, so that they're good people. And when they're not good people, we let them know that, well, God will kill you. Or we let them know we will do something to make your life horrible because you've done something wrong. Like we're, we're going we're gonna to be like God. Right, He told us to be like him. He told us to represent him here on this earth. So if God does this, if he incites bad, good people to do bad things so he can do really bad things, then we can do the same thing. And if we think the behavior of the church is, is generally headed in the wrong direction, if we think people are watching too many movies or spending too much time uh, at, uh, you know, in front of the TV at night, needs to spend... You, you need to spend more time reading the Bible, more time memorizing the Bible, more time uh, with your children, whatever. Like whatever behavior we think the church needs, then we incite something to occur so that we can manipulate the behavior. And that's what that's the picture that that the writer here has of God. So so this whole story comes from that filter. Verse 2, so the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, so that would be Abishai, Benaiah, and uh, the three guys, we, the top three guys we talked about last week, uh, go, out, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. And Joab, and remember now, Joab wasn't always... Like he, he was, he was a good guy. He was generally a good guy. He was generally a really good friend to David, unless he thought David wasn't, was being too nice to his enemies. And then Joab would just kill him. And I'm sure his heart was, I'll take care of this for David because I know David, I know David deep down wants me to do this, but he just won't say it. And remember uh, a couple episodes ago, right? Joab did it again. You know, he took out, uh, oh, after the, uh, 
after the coup, after Absalom's coup, he uh, he killed the new general, commander in general, because uh, I think it was his cousin, because he thought David didn't David didn't mean to put him in charge of the armies. These are my armies, so he took him out. Anyways, but here he's being a friend to David. He's like David. I pray that the Lord multiplies your troops hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men over, like just ridiculous amounts. And may, the, may, may, may you be alive to see it. But why do you want to do such a thing? Why do you want to take a census? Because Joab knows the Lord had told him. The Lord had, had, had said, if you, if you take a census, it's going like, to unlock negative, uh, negative things. Like the enemy will use your lack of trust as an opportunity to bring judgment to, the, to your people. He's going to he's going to look at it as not only a lack of trust but also pride and arrogance. Your desire to be able to say I have an army of 100,000, 200,000, 500,000, 6 million men, you know, march under the banner of David, whatever. He's like you're just going to set yourself up for negative ramifications because you're going to give access to the enemy. Don't do it. Trust me, I will keep your armies plentiful. And I will I will work, I will give you wisdom, I will give you strategies. You're not going to want for victories. There's no need for you to know how many men you have. But if you do it, you're going to be in trouble. Because I can see these things. It's not that God was predicting it in that you can't change these things. He understands the possibilities. And he says... If you do it, I can see these possibilities. It's it's not going to end well for you. So he warns David of this. And David decides, I'm going to go ahead and take a census. Now, do I think that the, you know, that God enticed David to do it? No, absolutely not. If you haven't picked that up yet already, I don't know how to explain it to you. I don't know how to explain it any better. I might get better at it later, but currently I don't know how better to explain it. Explain. I know it's explain. I know. I know. All right. My engineer, my head was like, okay, they're going to think you don't know how to say that. And I'm going to say, I do know how to say it. And so there it is. It's the word explain. Okay. On with the story. Joab's trying to be a good friend. He's like, you know that this isn't, you know, this isn't a good plan. You know, you're going against what God told you not like you're doing it wrong. And I, I hope your armies are 6 million people, whatever, whatever. Hundreds of times over, I hope they get multiplied by. You know not to do this. It says the king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So it turns out Joab had people backing him up on this. Joab, like the commander, you kind of picture it if you want to, like they're all sitting at the round table. And... And the and and David says, "All right, guys, I actually want to count. I want to count from the north to the south. I want every town, every guy, every eligible man that we pull on when we go into battle. I want to know how many that is." And and I kind of picture in the atmosphere like the the shuffling of the feet, guys looking down at their sword, people looking at each other. Some you know Abishai is looking over at Joab like kind of shaking his head, like, don't, like, no, 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 not a good idea. Like, say something. And Joab looks at him like, 
What am I supposed to say? And they're like, basically giving them that eye, like the eyes are big. I, I know I, you can't see me doing this, but I'm actually doing all the facial expressions. His eyes are big and kind of shrugging his shoulders like, I don't know what you want to say, but we all know this is not a good plan. We all know the warning that we got, that if we get into this, it's going to open up the door for negative uh, ramifications from the enemy. So think of something. So you picture David, uh, Joab kind of taking a deep breath and, and looking at David and saying, you know, my king, I hope, I pray that your armies multiply a hundred times over. hundred times. So millions. I hope you have millions of men in your army. But why do you want to do this? We, like, it's not a good thing. We all know it's not a good plan. And the king, I, I don't know. I don't know if he says this angrily. Like, Joab, I'm tired of, of always having you second-guess me. I don't know if it was because it was in front of all the commanders. I don't know if, if David, it says, it says uh, you know, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So I get the sense that David was like, are you, does any of you think that Joab's right? And, the, and they kind of all sheepishly are like, yes, yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, we don't want to take a census. And David takes this as a as a matter of pride. Like he had I think the fact that he overrules his men sitting there, I think already shows that he had entered into a into a agreement with pride, something that had already opened him up to making a bad decision. Which is why he made the decision. God didn't incite the the David to do this. Pride did. Arrogance did, self-protection did. Uh, some some f- concept of well, I need to I need to protect the nation. I need to know what what my resources are. I don't I don't know, but there was there was an arrogance there, and and so he overrules all of his advisors. So they left the presence of the king, and they all they all did it. I I they did what they were told. Right here, here Joab does what he's told. Like if he could have stood up against the king, I mean, he murders people in direct violation of a king's order, and here he goes with it. I don't know. If ever there was a day he should have disobeyed David, it was this one. He should have just said, you know what, guys? Forget about it. I'll deal with David. If he kills me, he kills me, but we're not we're not counting the men. I, I know what's going to happen. David's being prideful. He's being arrogant. He's trying to show himself off, whatever. I love David. I've been with him a long time. I'll take him on on this. But he doesn't. They all go off and they start counting, which again, doesn't this is not an overnight thing. It's not like it's not like a voting day. Everybody, you know, report on Tuesday, the first the first Tuesday of whatever month, and uh we'll we'll count it, you know, we'll count everything. No, he uh this this took months months all the all these commanders had to ride out with their men from the north to the south they had to go by every every village they had to send messengers out messengers took in the counts they were getting the counts other you know other times they went personally somebody had to add it all together they finally get all the numbers 
It says after crossing the Jordan, they camped near the south town and the gorge, and they went to Gad and Gezer, and they went to Gilead and the region of Dan, and da 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 da. And they went toward the fortress of Tyre and the towns of this, the Hivites and the Canaanites. Finally, they went to Beersheba. Like basically, they worked there. This is just a description. Like they had gone through the entire land. It took nine months and 20 days. So almost a full year. Almost a full year. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. There were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle the sword. And in Judah, 5,000. 500,000. So, so David finds out. David finds out that he literally has over a million men that are that are in the age group that is necessary to be what they consider able-bodied men able to swing a sword. Over a million. This is this is crazy. This is crazy. Now I do understand it. It's in some ways David could say, you know what? I need to know. I need to know. Because we need to make sure we have provision for that. Like if I need to call the nation to war, if I need to call the nation, not just the not just the people that you have under your command, which probably for Joab was probably about 100,000 men. And then he divided that amongst the, you know, Abishai, his his brother, and uh, uh, the other three commanders, and they, they divided it up and divided it up. But he was like, if I need to call the nation to battle, I need to know I have enough swords. I need to know I have enough chariots. I need to know we have horses to pull the chariots. I need to know we have we have slings and bows and arrows. Like he could have easily excused this all as a logistical thing. But everybody knew why he was really doing it. It was pride. So by the time this all comes around, nine months and 20 days later, almost 10 months later, it says David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men and he said to the Lord I've sinned greatly in what I've done now Lord I beg you take away the guilt of your servant I've done a foolish thing yeah that happens a lot right we make these decisions we move forward on those decisions and when David hears that he has over a million men that are willing to fight and able to fight I think in that moment he realizes what God had done and that is that God had multiplied as God said he would. And and David had the probably the largest you know, number of men available of any nation that he knew of. Most nations could maybe pull, you know, the Philistines at their height of power could pull together about 150 to 200,000 fighting men. David had over a million. Do you understand the, the the ramifications of showing up on a battlefield with a million men? Like that was insanity. That was so many fighting men. There would there there was there is no competition. That's how crazy this is. It's it's just crazy. And David, I think over the over the basically the ten months of this going on, he's <clears throat> you know he's just getting that that. That knot in his stomach, like, I probably shouldn't have done, like, ah, this is, 
And then he's then he's telling himself, no, 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 it's a good idea. It's a good idea. No, because I need to know. I just need to know. It's not that I'm trying to be prideful here. I'm just, I just need to know. Like there's practical reasons for this. Again, every time, every time we make a decision to go against the the flow of trust and love, right? We we can justify it. You can always justify it. I heard a saying that that has been true. I mean, I heard it. Oh, good grief. It must have been during my high school years. Might have even been during grade school because I've had this thing in my head for a long time. The basic thing is sin always makes sense to the person who's doing it. And the flip is also true. It doesn't make sense to those of you, to those of us who observe it. Like you can watch somebody doing the wrong thing and you sit there and think, why would they do that? But to the person in it, it always makes sense. That's always helped me when I'm when I'm working with people because I, I have the grace for them, realizing from their perspective, this makes sense. There's something about this that, that just tells them this is the right thing to do. And David, for those nine and a half, almost ten months, this all made this was this was he made sense of it until he heard the number. And I think the weight of the number, he realized how much God had been blessing him. And he realized, all right, I've I I woe. I should not have, no, like I have put in jeopardy a ton of the flow of God's blessing here. I put it all in jeopardy because I wanted to know. Uh, it's This is not about logistics. This is about my pride. And he realizes it right there. And he asks the Lord for forgiveness, which God will do. Before David got up in the morning, the word had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. So Gad had a role. Right, he was part of the government of David. He probably had an office and an apartment there in the on the on the hill of David, um, the city of David. And he goes to him and he says, uh, "This is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you." Wait, what? So God's telling? No. See, this is this is perspective. And I know some of you are like, "But that's the word of God." Uh, this can't be God. God would not show up to somebody and say, okay, there's three ways I want to start killing people. I'll let you choose which one. But I do understand when the prophet of God shows up with you, shows up and talks to you, of course you you are going to, it's it's very easy to receive that as the as God talking to you. I believe God is exposing to David the plans of the enemy. And in the goodness of, of God, he's like, you, you let me know. And I'll, I, will, I, will limit, I will limit the enemy's attack. I can at least do that on your behalf. So he gives them three options. He's like, uh, you can have three years of famine, three months of in which you're fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you. So basically, uh, you know, an outside nation is going to come up and, and do battle or three days of a plague in your land. And David answers. It's like, okay, you know, take some time, decide how you want it, what, what, what you want me to do. And David says, uh, let, let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of, of human hands. So basically, he's like, the first two, I don't like. That's way too long. Let's take the third, three days. So 
quote, the Lord sent a plague on Israel from the morning until the end of the time, three days designated. 70,000 people from Dan to Bathsheba died. When the angel, listen, this, this again, the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem. The Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was affecting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor, which is just outside just outside the walls of Jerusalem. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong, but these are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and, and my family. All right. This is this is, uh, this is is a difficult passage. I, I get it, which is why I'm dealing with it, right? I'm not going to pretend that this doesn't, this isn't part of the story of David. It is. So the the general the general movie version of this so in my head is David nine and a half ten months he gets the count he hears the numbers he's like oh man did I did I screw up I know why I really did this and it's ridiculous I I had nothing to worry about I had nothing to fear I have way more people than anybody could have imagined and now. I have put in jeopardy the continued flow of God's blessing because I've sinned. So he goes to God for mercy. He says, I've done a stupid thing. This this was stupid. I get it. Pride is foolishness, and I've done a foolish thing. So that's that. But the door has been opened to the enemy to come and do evil in the in the country. So I think God sends his messenger, he sends a prophet. He's like, tell David there's three things that are coming. If he... If he lets me know, I'll narrow it down to just one. And and he tells him, okay, you know, I don't, I don't, basically, I don't know what to choose. I don't know what to choose. Just, I don't know what to choose. This is insanity. So the plague comes, the three-day plague. And in three days, 70,000 people die. The angel of the Lord is moving in to destroy Jerusalem. This is this is again. Why is this? What you know? How do we know this isn't God? Because the death angel one doesn't belong to God. I get that he looks like an angel of light. I get that. The enemy looks like an angel of light, but that would mean that God has an angel whose only job is to kill people. In the same breath, God is also the giver of life. And you say, well, that's just like the yin and the yang. No, no, God is not a yin and a yang. He's all one. He's all love. He's all goodness. His love is a consuming fire. It consumes death. It defeats death. It casts the you know cast death out of heaven. So the angel of the Lord quote right Ugh. the angel's coming. The angel is not stopping with with the three day plague. That's what it means when it says that the angel like it had his eyes set on Jerusalem. The angel of the enemy, the angel of death. Doesn't is never satisfied. It's like selfishness. It's like that victim mentality that we 
dealt with who knows when I know I know I deal with it somewhere in this podcast because it's such a big theme throughout life. It's never satisfied. So the angel of death gets released into the into the into the country because of David's pride and it's killing people from the north to the south. It kills 70,000 people and God steps in and says that is enough. You will stop here. And David is overwhelmed with what's happened. And it's like, why, why, why? Like, please, like they, they all these people are innocent, which again speaks of not God. God is not going to kill innocent people. You can say, well, well, we're all born in sin, Bob. We all deserve death for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Yes, you're right. The wages of sin is death. And that's exactly why the angel of death showed up is because David sinned, not because God sent him. But God stopped him because the angel of death was going to wipe out the entire city. He was going to wipe out the entire nation. He wasn't going to stop at 70 or 70,000. So on that day, the prophet goes back to David. He goes, build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of the of this Jebusite where the angel of death is. So David went up as the Lord had commanded. And and when this the guy who owned the threshing floor, a Jebusite, he sees the king and his officials and he bows down before the king. And he's like, why have you come here? He's like, I've come to buy your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that, you know, that the angel of death would stop. And he's like, let the Lord take whatever he wishes and offer up. Here's my oxen. Here's, you know, basically wood threshing sledges and and the and yokes and and you can do whatever you need. Here's the stone, here's the wood, here's the land. May the Lord God you know accept your offering. And the king said, No, 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 no. I have to pay for it. I can't sacrifice to the Lord something that costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen, and he paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David bought the altar to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and the Lord answered his prayer on his behalf of the land, and the plague of Israel will stop. So all of this is going on when it says when it says um, in the phrase where it says, in, uh, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I've sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. But these people, what have they done? Let your hand fall on me and the family. The angel of the Lord was at, uh, the angel was of death there, was at the threshing floor. David sees what's happening to his nation. He gets, He's getting reports over the last, you know, several days of death that's occurring from one end of, a, of his country to the other. And he goes to the Lord. He's like, what have I done? Like, how do I, how, how do, how do I shut this door? How do I shut this angel down? And the Lord said, come into my presence. Lord said, make this right. You did a foolish thing, but you opened up, you opened up the opportunity for the enemy to come in and cause death. We can shut this down together. Come before me with, with thanksgiving and praise. I can do this. So David did. And he makes that phrase, that one phrase, like, I can't sacrifice to the Lord something that costs me nothing. And there's a lot of principle in that. There's a lot of power in that. Lots of times there are 
there are people, we, we've made choices that we give things to the Lord that don't cost us anything. Now, David had an abundance. Like, he didn't give, this is, this is where it gets twisted. He didn't give sacrificially. Like, he didn't wipe out the treasury of the nation in order to make God happy. That's not what it means. What he paid for, 50 shekels of, of silver, was not a huge amount of people. Uh, uh, sorry, a huge amount of money. It's just not. So what's it mean? It just means you can't have someone else do the work for you. You can't make things right with God by telling somebody else, uh, you know, having somebody else do the, do it for you. You can't say, oh, man, I'm so tired today. I'm just going to do, you know, my own thing, and we'll see what happens. No, you, you actually have to do the thing. You have to do the thing, whatever that is. And David knew that. He's like, I, I can't make things right on my own. What do I need to do? God's like, sacrifice to me. Now we can get into, I'll get into the sacrifice system, that whole system and why it was implemented. But let's just say it was it was put there, at some level it was put there because that's how, that because it meant a lot to people. Not because sacrifices mean a lot to God. God doesn't need the sacrifice. He doesn't need the animal to die. But it means a lot to the person. And God understands that. So it's like, you want to do something to make this right. It, it, it makes you, you know, again, it's that feeling. It's that idea in your head. It, if I do this, then this. And although it's not good theology, God understands it. He's like, okay, then make a sacrifice. Release my goodness. I'll stop the angel. I'll stop him right now. And that's exactly what happened. And the plague ended. Three days later, 70,000 dead. God does not make those kind of plans. God does not send those kind of angels. Not from my perspective anyways. And I know some of you that are listening are are internally like not happy with that because you, you, you want God to have an angel of death that sits, you know, behind the throne that has the, you know, the flaming sword I do think God kills the enemy, takes out the enemy. I do. I think the spiritual warfare is absolutely true. I just don't think God wipes out his people. I think the enemy wipes out God's people because they represent him. Well, what about Noah? Oh, yes. Stay tuned for the next epic narrative when I start the book of Genesis. Oh, baby. That'll be a good story. Till then, I'll see you on the next episode. Don't forget, honestly. Pass this around. I would love to get more feedback. I'd love to have more people hear us because I think these are good discussions to have all throughout scripture. So let's let's have the discussions together. Reach out to me on my webpage, on my email. And then of course, uh, listen again next time on the Epic Narrative.
Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.